Oh, I'm sorry, we're uh, we're five minutes late. I know, I know, and I think you've all made an amazing effort to come here in the middle of exams. So congratulations to you all. I, I hope there'll be some nuggets. You're quite a rowdy audience tonight. Uh, <laughs> a rowdy audience as befits our panel, the State of Freedom in LSE. Uh, this is me, I'm the chair, and uh, I'm here, uh, but this evening is it's about our two extraordinarily distinguished guests, uh, Shami Chakrabarti, Director of Liberty, and, and here is hot news, here is hot news, coming out quite soon at a very accessible price, published by... How much? 1899. Correction, at a moderately accessible. <laughs> Published by Penguin. Shami Chakrabarti on liberty. Yes, we do know it evokes memories of a certain obscure white male 19th century. Really? <laughs> Shami's research has been done by others. <laughs> no, it looks, uh, we've seen a bit of it on Amazon and you can buy it, it's fantastic. So that's what I So, Director of Liberty and Prospective Author. Uh, but mainly, of course, we're interested in Shami on the state of freedom. Uh, but first off is uh, a colleague, uh, extraordinarily distinguished. Uh, it's a fantastic thing to have Nikki Lacey back in LSE. She took a brief, it's almost like a sabbatical, <laughs> almost like a sabbatical in Oxford University. But she's back with us now as LSE School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy. And the format of the e evening is, first of all, that Nikki will speak for 15, 20 minutes plus, and then we have Shami for around the same, perhaps less. And the beauty of this extremely broad title, quite deliberately and consciously chosen, is that uh, they can range as they wish. And then we have interactions with you all, and also via Twitter. Uh, we now know that our audiences do this a lot, and we already have some questions. And if you want to ask a question during this, the hashtag is right in front of you there, LSE Freedom. We have, and he'll be revealed later, we have a Twitter guru in the room. And that's why there's a fourth chair, because at the relevant moment, the Twitter guru will reveal himself and, uh, uh, fully clothed. And he's looking, he's looking disappointed, not relieved. Uh, and he will feed some questions from Twitter into the discussion. We end uh, just before eight, if not well before, depends on how the evening goes. We won't keep ourselves here artificially, and there is, remarkably, and quite surprisingly, and much to my pleasure, a drinks reception. And also, excitingly, <laughs> we have anticipated quite a number of people at the drinks reception. It's not my normal drinks reception where we, we order wine for 10 people and 400 people turn up. <laughs> this is a drinks reception which will have drinks. So it's a rare bonus at LSE. <laughs> and that'll be directly outside and that'll be your reward. But before I ramble on to the point where there is no evening, Nikki Lacey. <laughs> Thank you so much, Connor. Um, it was just a, a delight to be invited to contribute tonight and share the, the platform with Shami. Um, 
I'm, I'm a bit fed up with Connor though because he's already stolen my, my first joke unwittingly. So I was about to start by thanking him for giving us such a well-focused topic. <laughs> so anyway, I've, I've taken the brief uh, as I think it was intended, which was to allow me to do what I talk about, what I really like to talk about. And since I'm a, a criminal lawyer, I am going to talk about what's been happening in criminal law, criminal justice more generally, but from very much the point of view of its implications for, for the state of freedom. And of course, criminalization and punishment are among the most freedom-threatening tools in the panoply of the power of modern states. But they also have a role in protecting the freedom freedom of, of members of society insofar as they proscribe behaviour which is itself liberty-threatening or otherwise harmful. So criminal law sort of create, raises some really key political and moral questions about how states should strike a balance between both the liberty interests of different groups within society and of course, as we've much debated in the years since 2001 between liberty and security, and I'll come back to that. So I'm going to focus on two arguments that have been sort of really around, not just in academic journals, but I think somewhat in the newspapers and, and uh, magazines over the last few years, and those are these. First of all, the argument that the scope of criminalization, the scope of both the criminal law and its enforcement, as a tool of governance in countries like this one has been increasing with direct and negative implications for, as it were, the state of freedom. And especially, I would say, and this is a theme I'm going to keep coming back to, to the distribution of freedom among different social groups. Secondly, the associated but slightly different argument that the nature and quality of this criminalization has been changing in subtle but quite important ways with less obvious but equally worrying implications. So I'll start by setting out those two arguments and then I will look at some of the questions about how we assess whether they're right, how we could prove them as it were. Um, and then I'm going to go on and look at some possible explanations of why they're happening to the extent that we know they are happening and then uh, leaving myself a very brief amount of time for by far the most difficult question but a very important one, how they might best be reversed or at least slowed down. So let's start just with the question of, of whether criminalization's scope is increasing. Is it just, are, are we criminalizing more? And I'm, I'm just focusing here really on the boundaries of criminal law and its enforcement. I'm not going to talk specifically about police powers, although clearly to the extent that the criminal law is broadening its scope, that implies greater discretionary power for the police, for the prosecution, and that in itself raises huge issues of accountability, of proper uh, controls, some of them human rights questions, uh, which I imagine Shami may advert to. So I'm, I want to uh, acknowledge that that's really important, but for the sake of having a reasonably clear focus, I'm going to confine myself to criminalisation. So the first and most obvious question is, how do we assess it? How could we tell whether the criminal law is growing, if there is more criminalization? And the most obvious place to look is in legislation. Is there more criminal legislation than there used to be? Now, 
I think ostensibly here we, we do see a hugely changed landscape. I studied criminal law about 35 years ago down the road at UCL. And um, so I think I started my criminal law course in about 1978. Um, we were still thinking that Theft Act 1968 was pretty significant and recent and up to the mark. The Sexual Offences Act 1976 was, you know, cutting edge stuff. And there was a bit of controversy about the Criminal Law Act 1977, and that was about it. Um, but today, and, and we would have great debates about why it was so difficult to get proper rationalising legislation for criminal law, with the response usually being, well, it's incredibly hard to get parliamentary time for criminal law reform matters. Not anymore. The world has absolutely changed. Um, I did a very quick review of some of the major pieces of criminal legislation over the last 20, 20 years. I'm not going to read out all the titles because there are 28 major pieces of criminal legislation. Significantly, seven of them, so a quarter of them, are terrorism legislation. But that still leaves 21 major pieces of criminal law reform. Things like Criminal Justice and Public Order Act, uh, Terrorism Acts of various kinds, Criminal Justice Act 2003, Crime and Security Act, significant title 2010, thought we might get a little bit of a lull when uh, the government changed, but not for long. We had then the Police Reform and Social Responsibility Act 2011, amendments to the Domestic Violence, Crime and Victims Act, um, and most recently, and I'll have a bit more to say about this, the Antisocial Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act of 2014. Um, now, um, that in itself shows us that criminalisation now occupies a very prominent place on the parliamentary agenda. But of course that in itself doesn't tell us all that much because these statutes are a very different length, uh, not all of their provisions enact criminal offences. Some of the offences they do enact replace older offences. Um, and of course Criminal offences are quite often created not by statutes like these, but by other more general statutes. So, uh, for example, the Children Act of 2004, the Education Act of 2005, the Financial Services and Markets Act of 2000, and for a little bit of light relief, the Fireworks Act of 2003, all create, among other things, criminal offences. And even that isn't the end of it, because many more regulatory criminal offences are created by regulatory legislation, by secondary delegated legislation. In other words, you get a statute that sets up powers for ministers, for example, to then create regulatory offences. They don't show up in the primary statute, so it's actually very hard to track them. So it's no good just looking at the legislation that has the word crime or criminal justice or something like that in its title. We've got to try and, in some sense, count the number of offences. And that sounds like a very simple thing to do, but let me just tell you it's not. It's harder than you might think uh, for all sorts of reasons, some of which we can discuss. But here are some estimates, and you'll see how widely they differ. If you were to just Google this question, probably the first place you would get taken would be the Legal Services Commission's list of criminal offences, and that looks actually quite manageable. There are about 300 on its list. 
And they're mainly in what would normally be seen as the kind of core areas of criminal law, violence, property offences, terrorism, illegal drugs, sexual offences, uh, offences against public order and public justice. But really, that is the tip of the iceberg. In 1980, a committee of the group Justice uh, uh, estimated that on conducting a search, they found over 7,200 criminal offences. By March 2001, just four years later, David Ormerod, in a leading criminal law textbook, estimated that there were more than 10,000. And thanks to our LSE colleague Jeremy Horder, Professor of Criminal Law here, who was then at the Law Commission, the Law Commission launched a very uh, careful consultation paper in 2010 and estimated then that since 1997, more than 3,000 criminal offences had come, new criminal offences had come onto the statute book. And I think very helpfully, they also try to give us some kind of longer term perspective on this. You know, is, is this really accelerating? And if it is accelerating, when did it start? We need to know that. And what they did was they looked at the volumes of Halsbury's Laws of England, which are the last word on statutes in force. Um, volume 1 of Halsbury covers the 637 years between 1351 and 1988, and it's three, 1,382 pages long. Volumes 2, 3, and 4 cover the offences created in the, just the 19 years between 1998 and 2008. They're 3,746 pages long. So more than two and a half times as many pages of Halsbury were needed to uh, cover those 19 years as were needed for the previous 637. And the Law Commission in that piece of work further estimated that about 3,000 pieces of that secondary delegated legislation that I mentioned are passed each year, many of those also creating criminal offences. And they give an example of um, an offence created under the Transmissible Spongiform Encephalopathies Number 2 Amendments Regulations 2008. Um, by the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, uh, which created 103 criminal offences aimed at reducing the risk posed by the spread of bovine spongiform encephalopathy, otherwise known as mad cow disease. So, in short, we can be pretty sure that what we might call formal criminalisation, in other words, that the, 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 the technical boundaries of the criminal law have been uh, increasing very fast over the last 25 or 30 years. Um, but even that, of course, only tells us quite a small amount because it doesn't tell us how many of these offences are being enforced. Uh, it doesn't tell us how many of them don't make that much difference because they overlap with pre-existing offences. It doesn't tell us how many are ineffective because the law courts just don't really have the specialist in, uh, information to advise them, that was uh, to enforce them. That was a point made very strongly by our colleague Julia Black, who uh, advised the Law Commission on those delegated offences in specialist regulatory areas like financial services. 
uh, it also doesn't tell us anything about how these offences are being interpreted. So we really need to know a, a lot more about what we might call the law in action here. Now, we do know, of course, the total numbers of people prosecuted and indeed convicted over time. And what we can say from that is that the numbers prosecuted and convicted have not gone up consonantly with the increase in the number of criminal offences. But even that doesn't tell us all that much because it doesn't tell us about the enormous discretionary power that this great miasma of formal criminal law has given to prosecuting authorities which may use that discretionary power as a kind of negotiating power or even a sort of blackmailing power rather than a formal enforcement power. And we're not just talking here about the police or prosecutors, we're now talking, and I'll say a bit more about this in a minute, about a whole range of enforcement agencies, not just regulatory agencies within or underneath ministries, but also local authorities, very importantly, even housing associations and so on. And that really brings me to my second main question, which is these uh, purported changes in the sort of quality, the kind of criminalisation that we're seeing. And here I'd like to just mention uh, four things that have been much discussed among uh, criminal law colleagues, which I think are, are important and significant and ought to be reaching a broader audience. Um, the first is that a great deal of uh, recent criminalisation has been pushing back the, back the boundaries, the temporal boundaries at which criminal liability kicks in ever further from a completed offence. So to give you an example, it's, it's an offence to cause somebody's death with intention. It's also always been or long been an offence to attempt to do so. But what's now happening, and it happened earliest probably in the sphere of terrorism legislation, is that we're getting offences which are much more remote from that ultimate, obviously, criminal act. Things like, I mean, a, a good example, I think, would be an offence under Section 5 of the Terrorism Act of 2006. A person commits an offence if, with the intention of committing acts of terrorism or assisting another to commit such acts, he engages in any conduct in preparation for giving effect to his intention. So that really means that you could be already guilty of an offence under this section for, well, it's really hard to know how far back in time that liability would go. Um, there's another really good example actually in today's headlines. I don't know how many of you saw this, but Theresa May is in the headlines once again about yet another of those pieces of legislation I was talking to you about, uh, the new serious crime bill about to feature strongly in the Queen's speech. Tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, is it tomorrow? Uh, which is, you know, it's a really nice headline for the Home Secretary. We're going to do more about organised crime. None of us agree with organised crime, so it's a very popular message. Organised crime groups use a range of associates, the Home Secretary said, both professional and non-professional, to help them. For example, by writing contracts, renting warehouse space or delivering packages. And what they're going to do is actually, in effect here, massively, as far as I can see, broaden out the scope of criminal liability beyond the existing, already quite wide, provisions for aiding and abetting 
as a secondary party criminal offences. So that moving back of the temporal boundaries is a very important development. Second important development, which I think you'll all know about, is the creation of these hybrid forms of criminal civil liability, of which the most famous is the antisocial behaviour order. Effectively, what happens here is that something Typically, a local authority will apply for something that looks a bit like an injunction, an antisocial behaviour order. You apply for it only on a civil standard of proof, but when somebody breaches the order, they're guilty of what amounts to a criminal offence with really quite uh, potentially severe sanction. Closely related to those hybrid forms of criminal civil uh, regulation, we have what I think I would call sort of de facto criminalization in areas that aren't really part of formal criminal law. And I think the obvious example here would be immigration. We are seeing the sort of de facto criminalization of many migrants. Um, and I think, fourthly, this sort of amounts to, and again, terrorism is the most obvious but not the only case, to almost a sort of recreation of an older kind of status-based or group-based, group membership-based form of criminalization in which the whole idea of criminalization is in some way tied up with the idea of, of being a bad character. Now, these two features, uh, these features of criminal law aren't absolutely new, but I think their scope is new. Um, and they really have changed the balance of power, both as between the state and citizens, uh, between state, uh, including prosecuting authorities and ordinary citizens, but also, I think, between different groups of citizens. And that's why I want to talk here not just about a curtailment of freedom, but a sort of redistribution of freedom within uh, the policy. And let me just take one very brief case study before I move on to the final points I want to make, which is the Antisocial Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act, the most recent large piece of criminal legislation uh, enacted this year, very recently. Um, please don't ask me any detailed questions about it. Here's why. It covers 246 pages. It boasts 186 sections plus 11 schedules. The first 122 sections are centrally in the area of criminal law. They include a rag bag of things, dangerous dogs, firearms, forced marriage. Um, but the really striking feature of the Act is that it also significantly pushes outwards the terrain of these hybrid and uh, orders and the sort of de facto criminalisation. Um, there's an absolute panoply of new preventive orders in this legislation, a few of them, criminal behaviour orders, public spaces protection orders, consumption of alcohol in breach of prohibition orders, orders restricting public right over the highway, forced marriage protection orders, community protection notices, it goes on and on. Now, two main things about this legislation. First of all, the remedial structure, you know, what, what happens if you uh, breach one of these orders is, is quite distinctive um, it in, in, in that it includes a lot of provisions for things like confiscation of property or exclusion from uh, property, which might mean your home, uh, and it might mean um, 
where you actually live if you're homeless. And I think there is a real issue about what some of the social knock-on effects of some of these sanctions will be. But perhaps even more obviously, um, the, the, what's distinctive here and very much a feature of these hybrid civil criminal orders is the um, distinctiveness of the range of enforcement authorities who are getting involved in effect in criminalization. Uh, key among them, local authorities, uh, but other authorities who have uh, responsibilities in relation to land. Now, there's obviously a sort of agenda, broader political agenda here, which has to do with what well, we used to call it active citizenship. And uh, at the beginning of this administration, it was known as the big society. Um, there's a lot about communities getting together and negotiating with the local authority, which has to produce a community remedy document. Um, it has to, uh, the police have to, uh, uh, have, a, have an obligation to consult with community representatives, uh, which I looked at the small print on this, and that seems to be whoever the police think represent the community. Now, I'm actually working at the moment, my own research is in part on um, what the impact of um, the very great degree of local power in the United States uh, is on criminal justice. And uh, the US has a uh, much greater delegation of local power to elected authorities at the to, of criminal justice power to elected authorities at the local level than we have here or I think will ever have. Now, it sounds democratic to, to get this power down to the local level, to get citizens and community representatives involved, but here's the question we should be asking. Who will involve themselves and what will their interests be? Will these be things that will be for the general public interest, which is what the criminal law is meant to be about? Or will it be about uh, you know, the more privileged people who want to not have people drinking in their parks? Perfectly reasonably, but nonetheless, you know, there are some people who don't have many options about where they hang out. So I think we really have to ask whether these things, you know, what's the pattern of enforcement here? Who's going to be on the receiving end of this, uh, all these new uh, preventive orders? And I think that my worry is that they will uh, really contribute to kind of polarizing dynamics. And that's why I emphasize the question of um, the distribution of freedom. Okay, I want to just make my last two points very briefly. So why is it happening? Why, if it, it seems as though this is happening, why is it happening? Three arguments are out there. Uh, one is that as governments have become less autonomous in relation to the economy, as the economy globalizes, they tend to go for criminal law, criminal justice as a kind of nice, strong policy area. Uh, it doesn't require them to create any new infrastructure, and it makes them look tough. Uh, secondly, my colleague here, Peter Ramsey, has argued that New Labour was sort of very clever and inventive in that they fixed on the widespread feelings of insecurity and vulnerability that come with our sort of late modern world and uh, produced policies like the ASBO to, and other uh, policies in the criminal law area to uh, proscribe 
conduct which fails adequately to reassure fellow citizens in a world in which fear of crime and a more general sense of insecurity is widespread. And then finally, there's an argument which I, uh, with others, have been developing, which is, I think, really one that focuses on the link between these developments and uh, growing inequality. Um, so my thought is that we might explain both the scope of that insecurity on which Peter Ramsey focuses and the popularity, particularly among swing voters, floating voters in the middle of the spectrum, of these, uh, these policies like the ASBO, uh, of uh, really very, in my view, very unfortunate policies on uh, the curtailment of migrants' rights, um, and um, that, the, in a way, this growing social and economic inequality is eroding the degree to which we see ourselves as sharing a common fate and therefore producing these kinds of polarizing logics, which, in my view, are reflected in these uh, delegations of power to the local level. Um, so <clears throat> I think the underlying question here is about social inequality and social um, social polarization and the idea that some groups are not going to have, because of that, full access to their freedoms. Well, I haven't left myself much time for solutions. Uh, you know, there is no, nothing general to be said about this. Uh, there are some areas that are easier to fix than others. I mean, the, the explosion of regulatory offences has been, to some extent, turned back by some very sensible Law Commission proposals about building in a kind of gateways within departments so that, they, that departments had to come up with fairly structured reasons if they really wanted to make a criminal offence rather than just uh, a civil provision. Um, turning back the sort of creeping growth of, growth of criminalisation more generally, though, I think is going to be much harder. Of course, human rights challenges, and I imagine Shami will be talking about these, are a key tool in that effort. As I think, and I want to emphasize this, uh, will be much more social research on the implementation and impact of these newly enacted laws. I think we really need good research on who's using them, who they're being enforced against, and their broader social impact. At root, I suppose I believe that there are some very deep political and social dynamics here which we're going to have to tackle, not just in terms of changes in criminal justice policy or criminal law, but in terms of social and economic policy. So just to sum up, I, I see there as being three sort of real components to be addressed here in relation to these developments in criminalization and in freedom. Um, first of all, the increase in this formal and actual criminalising power vis-à-vis -vis citizens generally, clearly prima facie, implies uh, a decline in freedom for the citizen vis-à-vis -vis the state. That has been justified, secondly, through uh, the compensating promise of the, as it were, freedom-enhancing potential of a fairly uh, uh, implemented and effective criminal law. And we really need to know how widespread that implementation is and its impact. And if the truth is that it's not really making much difference to the problems that cause the insecurities that cause the popularity of these policies in the first place, 
then we need to know that, and that seems to me very important. And thirdly, of course, if they are ineffective and there is no compensatory uh, enhancement of freedom, we further also need to know how that encroachment on freedom is distributed across social groups. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, uh, Nick. Uh, Sean. Well, it's um, it's lovely to be back at the um, the LSE where I was um, where I was a student. Um, but it's a slightly daunting privilege, you can imagine, to to follow Nikki. Um, Nikki and, and and Connor aren't just the the, the cleverest. Um, lawyers that I've known, they're actually um, the most articulate in that they speak plain English, which is, which is, um, it, it's not a universal, um, it's not a universal <laughs> gift in the, in, in the profession or even in the academy, um, I, I have to say. Um, um, you know, we can, we can attack the political class and we're sort of part of it or we're sort of semi-detached from it, but, but, but sometimes my fellow, my fellow lawyers, I'm a lawyer in recovery, by the way, because um, I'm a sort of activist these days. Or perhaps you never recover. Perhaps I'm in remission. <laughs> and, uh, and the way to do that, I guess, is one, one drinks reception at a time. Um, um, but, um, but you know what I mean. I mean, we've, you know, legal aid's practically decimated. We've lost all these battles on various due process issues and so on. And, and some, some of our of our friends and colleagues have been up on the Today programme time and again. And, you know, you never use a word of English if if um, I know 25 of Latin would do, and, and it, hasn't, it hasn't always helped. And, and, and Connor and Nikki are fantastic um, exceptions to that. And, and um, you know, they, they speak human, which, um, which all the politicians don't, don't, don't do either. I, I was going to, to I, I had some thoughts about how to deal with this fantastic, um, fantastically broad topic, which is what we like as activists. We like to come and just say whatever's on our mind that day. But, but I think that, that Nikki's um, speech is, 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 is so, um, so important. It deserves a little response before I kind of make a few points um, of my own. I do think that one lens through which to look at the whole state of freedom or its demise over the last decade is the lens of criminalisation, no question. I want to just say that I completely, from a more practitioner point of view, um, and, and if you don't know much about me, I um, very early in my career I was a government lawyer. Perhaps the most formative um, moment in my career was, was kind of six odd years um, between sort of 96 and 9-11. And um, in, in, in the Home Office, um, working on lots of crap laws, um, really, for, for governments of both persuasions, I want to, I want to add. Um, and so I completely recognise um, the, um, the um, trajectory that, that, that Nikki has charted so, so expertly. And yes, I think you can look at the whole um, demise of freedom, and there has been, on balance, a demise, um, more than on balance, a demise, through the lens of criminalisation. That's too many criminal offences, that is um, preemptive criminal offences, you know, um, and the bastardisation of due process, and that's by the kind of the kind of mutant mutant hybrids like antisocial behaviour orders and and everything that, that that came from that. Because you you develop a wonderful little mechanism like an antisocial behaviour order, and that ends up as a control order and then as a T-pin. 
right? So, you, so it starts off in you know wonderful new labour progressive thinking back, you know, before things could only get better, you know, before before you know 1997 and the People's Palace and all of that. And wouldn't it be great if we could um, we could have a lovely sort of civil injunctive type thing that would. Um, that would give people a sort of warning, and they wouldn't have to go to they wouldn't have to go to prison. They wouldn't have to be criminalised initially. They just get this kind of asbo thingy, and you'd get it on a lower balance of proof, and you'd get it for behaviour that was kind of nuisance or kind of impolite or kind of you know. And we wouldn't have to define it too carefully. And but then you'd get a kind of injunctive type warning. And but of course. You muck about with the due process and it becomes not a warning, it becomes a shortcut into criminalisation. And I'm trying not to be cynical here, there may have been some very progressive people back in 96 and 97 who thought it would be, it would be a way out of the system and actually it became a shortcut into criminalisation and, and in, into to custody. So yes, you had the mutant hybrid of um, blurring the civil and criminal law that, that, that Nikki's described so, um, so adeptly. But you then also add it, you know, even civil law was too, um, was too challenging for the sausage machine that was Mr. Blair's idea of due process. And so we'll go for, the, we'll go for administrative law. And that's, where, that's how you ended up with things like Belmarsh and and secret courts and, and, and so on. So even the civil law was too exacting for this, um, for this, we know who the bad guys are. That's not a paraphrase, that's a direct quote from Tony Blair. We know who the bad guys are, we don't need due process. We don't need the 19th century criminal justice system where too many, that's concerned with too many of the um, innocent being convicted, we're concerned, but you know, turn Blackstone on his head. These are direct quotes from Mr. Blair, these are not cheeky paraphrases from me. So you do, we blur the civil and criminal law and then when that's too exacting, we go for immigration law and we go for secret courts and due processes now, not even process at all. It is, it is quasi-courts and secret courts, and, and that's where it goes on process. So I completely agree with, with what Nikki said. Um, too much criminality in terms of substantive criminal offences, too much preemption in terms of thought crime before you even do the deed, and muck about with due process so that you can just, you know, um, sweep people into the system because we know who the bad guys are. So seeing as that she's done such a fantastic job, on, what, what, what's left for me? Well, I think <laughs> that I'll look at it through another, I'll look at the same problem and the same landscape and perhaps the same period of time through another lens, and that's the lens of universality, which she's kind of touched on, and actually in Connor's fantastic book, which um, I, don't, I don't, as you know, I'm in recovery or remission, so I don't read so many law books these days. Um, and, um, you know, I just, it's all sound bites with me. Uh, I always say to my colleagues at Liberty, when the, when the bad guys do it, it's spin. When we do it, it's defense against the dark arts. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, and so sound bites are the sort of modern, a sort of political haiku. They're sort of great political poetry, but we're talking about, you know, we're talking about putting an idea in, in a sentence or two. And so even Connor's very, very pithy um, book, which is called Liberty and Security, which I really think you should all read if you haven't. It's really quite, I mean, what is it, 100, 100 and... 
a bit more than 100 pages. But God, I hope so. I think a bit more. <laughs> a bit more. But, you know, the Communist Manifesto and uh, a lot of Scott Fitzgerald and, you know, lots of, lots of great, lots of great, um, lots of great um, works are, are short. You really, you really ought to, to read um, Connor's book, Liberty and Security, because it's kind of about the rule of law and democracy, and it's kind of about, it's kind of about the domestic and the global, and it's the, the same issues but put into a post-9-11 context, but also a, a context that's way older than 9-11, that goes right back to our idea of what the state should be and what the relationship between the state and the people should be, and some people's instinctive authoritarian idea of the state as the great le leviathan, as opposed to an idea of of it being a, a political community that could be broadened so that we all have a, a stake in it, not just in this country but all over the world. So it's relevant to the lens that I want to look through at this problem of the demise of freedom in our country, and that is the question of universality. Because in my experience of doing this job now for nearly 11 years, um, despite all the hysterical headlines and, and political rhetoric, people do actually love human rights, their own. <laughs> no, seriously, they do. My speech right now, at least for a few more minutes, is free and yours is a little more expensive, right? Um, we love our own rights and freedoms and those of people like us, right? You know, your kids should have the ASBO, my kids should have the extra cello lessons and maths tuition, right? Even when politi you know, occasionally politicians' kids go off the rails and there are nasty little stories in newspapers. You know what I'm talking about because, because the custody sergeant has, has phoned up a tabloid newspaper and some of the same politicians that were wagging their forefingers... It might, by the way, they wagged their forefingers with this hand, the other hand was doing the expenses, but we won't go there. Um, universality. Um, but, you know, everybody's kids our kids. It's just that when you're in a council estate, it's called antisocial behaviour, and when you're in an Oxbridge college, it's called the Bullingdon Club. <laughs> I'm sort of teasing, but not really. So I'm going to look at the same sort of proposition of the demise of freedom, but through the lens of universality as being the opposite of hypocrisy, or the opposite of of my speech is free and, and yours is more expensive because that's another way in which freedom seeps away. And you can, you can, you can, you can chart it in so many ways. It's a bit like the Holocaust poem, you know, and there was nobody left to speak for me. And the most existential threat to this idea of equality or equal treatment or universality in the context of law and human rights, the existential threat to it is the threat to the Human Rights Act and the threat to the Convention on Human Rights. Make no mistake. That's where this is coming from. That's where this is coming from. And, 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 and that is the beef that the critics of the Human Rights Act and the ECHR have with it, that it protects everybody, not just me and people like me, but everybody, including foreign nationals, which is kind of the elephant in the room, let's face it, because a lot of this is is connected with a, with, with a toxic debate on immigration, which, which Nikki um, touched on um, just, a, just a little in, 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 her, in her remarks. 
So we've got an, so we've got at least two parties who are if 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 UKIP I suppose UKIP is now a serious party, right? In terms of a serious challenge to what we're talking about here today, we've got at least two parties who are likely to go into the next general election campaign with manifesto commitments to either pull out of the Convention on Human Rights or seriously tinker with it or reserve from it in some way, and no doubt to scrap the Human Rights Act. We have um, Her Majesty's opposition who we don't know how, how certain and, and, and sure-footed or ambivalent they're going to be. There's, a, there's a, a piece in one of the national newspapers today suggesting that they might have to be some guidance to judges to tell them to take less notice of, of Strasbourg jurisprudence, and that's from the shadow, the shadow Lord Chancellor, um, who no doubt meant well. Um, you know that meant well. I, I, you know, I, I'm very clear on 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 the Human Rights Act. The injunction on the judiciary is to take account of Strasbourg jurisprudence, not remotely to be bound by it. And that is explicit in the Human Rights Act. And that is the settlement. And it preserves national sovereignty and it, it preserves parliamentary sovereignty, as you all know, because there's no strike down power in relation to primary legislation. End of story. Stick, don't twist. No messing about with the Human Rights Act because the beef with the Human Rights Act is it protects everybody. And so any Bill of Rights that will come in its place will not be a progressive human rights document. It will be reductive and it will be divisive and it will not be about protecting human rights for everyone. That's, uh, that, 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 that's my position. Um, and if we look at some of the greatest incursions on rights and freedoms since 9-11, um, though we could even we could go further back, um, they um, generally begin as, um, as divisive. They, gen they generally begin as an attack on the rights and freedoms of one group. And then this becomes acceptable. And then either because the power is so broad that it can be used in an unexpected way, like the extradition treaty. That wasn't supposed to be about Gary McKinnon looking for UFOs on the internet, was it? It wasn't supposed to be about Christopher Tappin in his blazer and corduroy trousers at his golf club in Orpington doing his, um, doing his import-export business, was it? That was sold to everybody in a hurry post 9-11 as summary extradition for dark-skinned terror suspects. And look at the surprise Look at the surprise and the outrage, the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, fantastic campaign from the Daily Mail um, that helped to some extent to, to, you know, to keep Gary McKinnon in this country and have him dealt with here, which is com completely right. Um, and you know, both coalition parties in opposition got behind that. Nobody should, be, nobody should be parceled off around the globe if you believe remotely in due process and the presumption of innocence without a basic case being shown in a local court. And when they never left the country and they sat on the internet and everything that they did could be looked at here, nobody should be treated that way. But let's face it, that treaty was passed because it wasn't passed um, with Gary McKinnon in mind. And Gary McKinnon was saved because his name was McKinnon and not Khan. Let's be, let's be absolutely blunt about this. And the coalition parties that campaigned against the extradition treaty and act and made promises in opposition did not deliver in government. 
And if I were to go through just for a few minutes some of the some of the substantive incursions into the various rights and freedoms in the convention, you can see in relation to most of them that it begins with an attack on equal treatment and universality. If you sum up in lay people's terms what human rights are all about before you get into article this and that of this or that convention, three words for me. Dignity, as in each and every one of us is special just because we're alive and our lives are precious and we're entitled to a bit of dignity and autonomy. Equality, as in, not as in formal equality, but in terms of certainly in terms of equal treatment under the law and the application of the laws. And fairness in the sense of some kind of due process right, some kind of fair hearing before terrible things happen to you. Now, bearing in mind I'm talking about civil and political rights here and not necessarily about, you know, about, about everything else. Dignity, equality and fairness. And the greatest of these is what? Equality. Equality. And why? Because my speech is free and yours is a little bit more expensive. And you'd say, but Shami, equality can't be more important than, say, the rule against torture. Surely not. Surely if we're talking about the most important human rights, they must be these hardcore, you know, Article 2, Article 3, Article 4 of the Convention, right to life, right against torture, right against slavery. Well, actually, no. Because in practical, political and policy and human terms, people wouldn't be tortured and people wouldn't be enslaved if, if it was going to happen to everybody. And as, um, and as our dear and learned friend Rabinder Singh, now Sir Rabinder Singh, once said here at the LSE, the beauty of the principle of equal treatment, he, he gave a great lecture here many years ago before he was, before he was a judge where he talked about equality as the neglected virtue. Because the beauty of the principle of equal treatment is it forces democratic majorities to put themselves in the place of the minority whose rights they're prepared to trade away. So I'll give you an example. Let, let's, let's, it, well, let's go back to torture. Let's go back to torture and, um, for a moment. In, the, in Freedom's name, we had, this, we had all these wonderful um, euphemisms post 9-11, the war on terror being a fantastic euphemism in itself, but others like um, extraordinary rendition, which isn't, um, which isn't beautiful singing, but, um, but, but, but kidnap, and, kidnap and torture, right? And waterboarding, which isn't a sort of um, seaside sport that, that you might do if you wished you could all be California girls, right? It's actually, it's actually drowning. It's not even simulated drowning. It's beginning to drown someone. Now, these things would not have happened if, um, if um, people didn't think they could just get away with it for foreigners, and ditto the worst, um, you know, moving away from hardcore, you know, torture and um, move into due process rights. Move into, you know, Article 5, right against arbitrary detention. Article 6, right to a fair trial, for example, before you're branded a terrorist. You know, where were the worst violations of these rights on both sides of the Atlantic after 9-11? They were in relation to non-nationals. How did clever White House lawyers get away with it? They told the president, it's okay, because these are enemy combatants, they're not our nationals, and we're doing it offshore in a little torture haven, offshore, tax, sorry, torture haven called Guantanamo Bay. And that's how you get away with the, with the worst violations of human rights and the worst um, um, abridgments of freedom or liberty 
by carving it up by nationality. I'm not interested in the word citizen anymore. I'm interested in the word human being. Because citizenship, it seems to be a privilege that is given and taken away by the political community and not even the political community, the political elite. And it happened, it happened in Nazi Germany and it happened, you know, it happens all over, all over the world. Citizenship is given and it's taken away. And if your rights and freedoms are contingent on that, you know, I think that's incredibly, um, incredibly fragile indeed. Now let's go to Article 8. Let's go to you know the more the, the, the balanced or qualified rights and freedom. Now, now privacy has been a massive issue, and I ought to touch on privacy if we're talking about freedom in modern Britain, because there've been enormous challenges to the right to um, the right to respect your private life and your home and your correspondence as protected by by Article 8 of the Convention now in, in, in the Human Rights Act. Now, what have the challenges been? Well. Um, there's, been, there's obviously been this kind of post 9/11 um, um, state of state of fear. There's obviously been um, the complacency that goes with the political sentiment and slogan "nothing to hide, nothing to fear." You know that one, right? Nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And then, of course, there's been the um, the amazing technological developments um, that that have come in the last. 20, 15, 10, even fewer years, and the, and, and, and the growth of the internet in particular, which is a wonderful thing, including for Democrats and activists and internationalists to connect with each other and communicate with each other. It's a great leveller for the activists against the Leviathan state, but it's also a real challenge to our, to our, to, to our privacy and the dignity that goes with privacy. Now, people often, even on the left, even at places like this, often think that I'm uh, a bit silly for banging on about privacy when there are far greater human rights violations in the world. But I would just ask them to reflect on the very important relationship with um, privacy rights and all the other rights and freedoms in the, in the bundle. I mean, how could you, how could you have for example, um, free elections without a secret ballot? How can you have a fair trial without confidential counsel? How can you have you know, decent uh, medical care without medical confidentiality? How can you have, really have freedom of thought, conscience and religion without a little bit of private, you know, private space? How can you have you know, um, equality in the context of, of, of your most intimate life? Um, how can you... And, and, and even though we know that, for example, speech and privacy are often in tension with, you know, kiss and tell stories and the tabloids and all the rest of it, how many journalists are prepared to give up their confidential sources? And to be less technical about it, what does a state without respect for privacy look like? Go and watch that lovely German film, The Lives of Others. And a world without privacy, a state without privacy, is a place without intimacy, dignity, or trust between human beings. It's not a very nice place to live. Now, that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be a qualified right, and it shouldn't be a balanced right, and we don't need necessary and proportionate limitations on privacy all the time, every day. It just makes the exercise of balance even more important, and it means equal treatment becomes most important of all. Because you always begin with, you know, the fingerprinting, it begins in schools and it begins with asylum seekers. 
and 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 so it goes on. The ID cards begin begin that way too, and then it becomes acceptable and socially acceptable, and and so it expands. And just to and we've got to touch on, haven't we, the Snowden revelations? Because this is this is interesting for privacy. It's interesting for the whole citizenship versus universality point, and it's interesting, I think, for the for, for democracy and the rule of law. My biggest beef with what's been going on with PRISM and Tempora is this. It's actually a democratic political beef. It's not that, um, it's not that people on both sides of the Atlantic decided that it was proportionate in, in, in response to threats from whatever, you know, terrorism, paedophilia, the list goes on. It's not that they made a decision that, uh, that you know, no doubt with honest conviction that blanket surveillance of entire populations was legitimate and proportionate. It's that they took it upon themselves to do it in secret without telling their people that this was what was going on. And what is worse, what is worse, is during the period when this was merrily going on, we were having debates in this country about something that my colleagues branded the Snoopers Charter. And because we're, it's all Orwellian wars on words, they called it the Draft Communications Data Bill. We actually had a political debate in this country about whether blanket surveillance of the internet and, and those sorts of communications was, was legitimate. And the bill stalled and was dropped. And we were made fools of because they didn't need that. They were just doing it anyway. Right? And we know what the argument is. The argument is bad stuff happens online. Therefore, the, um, the internet should not be an ungoverned space like Afghanistan or Somalia or somewhere. People are doing bad things. There's child pornography online. There's conspiracies to terrorism, all sorts of things online. So we've got to, we've got to act. And nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Now, my response is that bad stuff happens in the real world too. And actually... As a feminist, I would say, I think Nikki would agree with me, a lot of really bad stuff happens in the home. Right? We're in a, we're in a city where there are some domestic dwellings that have, that have been around for hundreds of years. Lovely old townhouses in this city. You, you know where they are. They're everywhere. Any domestic dwelling that has, that has stood for more than, what, a decade? Probably less. I guarantee has been a crime scene. And I'm not talking about newfangled regulatory offences, I'm talking about sex offences and violent offences, all the way from common assault and indecent assault right up to rape and murder. The older the property, the more likely that is. Okay? So bad stuff happens in the real world too. Why don't we um, take this internet argument and apply it to the real world, not just the virtual world? And say, well, nothing to hide, nothing to fear. Don't worry, all we're going to do is change the legal and physical architecture of this country. So there's now a requirement on architects and landlords to install cameras and, 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 um, cameras and microphones in every domestic dwelling because we are so concerned about domestic violence and sex crime and, and, and so on. But don't worry, we're just going to scoop this stuff up because digital technology allows us to do that. But we're not going to look at it no, but think about it. That's what they're saying. That's the argument for the online surveillance. We're not going to look at it. We'll have all these Byzantine processes. Don't worry, we're just going to scoop it up. But there will be a camera and a microphone in your living room, possibly in your bedroom. And then if after the fact there's something suspicious about you or somebody makes a complaint about you, we'll be able to go back and check the archive to see what you were up to 
in your living room, in your bedroom, three and a half weeks ago on a particular day. If you put it like that, to a, particularly to an older generation of the British electorate and British public, and suddenly nothing to hide, nothing to fear, doesn't feel quite so comfy, does it? And to younger audiences that I speak to, they feel that they're living their intimate lives more online than they are necessarily in the physical architecture of their home. But to go back to my point on universality and why it's so important, why we need human rights and not citizens' privileges, um, look at how they got away with this on both sides of the Atlantic. There was slightly more rigorous protection for their own people in their own jurisdiction and practically nothing for the foreign jurisdiction and other people's citizens. I'll spy on yours if you spy on mine. It's a bit like I'll show you mine if you show me yours, right? And then we do the trade. Then we do the trade, which is yet another reason for preserving the ideal of universal human rights rather than just local civil liberties or citizens' privileges. Because otherwise, with this little trade and this international collaboration, but it's not, it's not just terrorists that collaborate across national borders. It's not just multinational corporations and, and, and governments. It ought, to be, it ought to be all of us with our universal human rights values as well, I would, I would suggest. So even the privacy piece shows the importance of uni universality. I've, I, I've gone on, we must have time for discussion and for Connor's many drinks. Um, so, so here's the thing, the extradition piece, you know, proves it. That, and the uh, detention piece proves it, the privacy piece proves it, the greatest threat to our freedoms, I would argue, in this country. And, you know, criminalisation, yes, but the greatest threat of all is that we, we, we sign away rights and freedoms for other people that we think we can preserve for ourselves and it won't work. The pick and mix of that kind will not work. It will not work. The easiest way to drive a coach and horses through hard-won freedoms is by saying they won't be for everyone. They'll be for some people and not others. They'll be for, they'll be for my children and, your, and not yours. And that's really what's gone on, I would say, on both sides of the Atlantic more than anything else post 9-11. That's what's being offered. And it's very, very attractive um, on the right of politics in particular, but not exclusively on the right of politics nationalism and, and that kind of parochial approach to, to, to freedom or equality or whatever the virtue is, 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 is not just um, about the, the right of politics. So there's the choice, I think, for Democrats in Britain as we head for a gener general election and all over the world. Do you choose to be protected as a human being everywhere or do you choose to take potluck as a foreigner nearly everywhere on the planet and, and say a little prayer and hope that you, your freedoms will be protected. I know, I know which, which path I choose. Thanks very much. Terrific, great. Thanks, Charmy, very much. Uh, Bradley, do you want to come up? Bradley's the Twitter guru. There he is, fully clothed. Uh, now, look, we, we've got about half an hour, but if we go, run slightly over about a half an hour. 
uh, but we need to do this fairly speedily. So we've got a few tweets, and we want to make the people who've done the tweets feel it's worthwhile. So we're going to come to you for one in a minute. Okay. Uh, I think we're going to take two or three in a row. Uh, we've the lady already well-versed in LSE, caught my eye. We've got a gentleman up there with, I think, a rather lavish bow tie. Is that right, sir? Well done, well done. You've caught my eye sartorially. Uh, so, uh, can now, I, what, what... Can I just what, say something yes. on Twitter quickly? Um, yes. In case you're not worried about your privacy and your freedom, you can sign up to the cloud so you can have <laughs> access to Wi-Fi. Um, if you are interested in doing that, you find the Wi-Fi, click the cloud, sign up if you don't already have an account. Um, Tweet us your comments and questions using hashtag LSE Freedom uh, or directly to me on this at LSE Law. I do apologise. I mean, give him an inch. Give him an inch. <laughs> Thank you, Bradley. I should have said that much You're earlier. You're welcome. Uh, you, now, you need to say, if you feel you can, who you are, and also, it's, I think, going to be a fairly short observation. We want to try and put a few in, and the chaps beside you. Where you go, madam? Uh, I'm Nazreen from London. Um, the question I have, or the issue that... I wanted to ask um, was that you both talked about inequality and it was interesting to me because in this country I think whether or not it's true the perception is that um, inequality is best solved by people like Labour but then on the other hand as both of you pointed out people like Labour have also been the kinds of people who've intruded on freedom um, and how, what, how do we go about resolving such a tension in this country? I can't even begin to think about the big human rights thing because it was massive. Are you slightly asking them whether we should support Labour, or are you not? <laughs> no, because I, I think, um, so personally, I, I, I grew up just after 9-11. Yeah. My parents oh, were very, <laughs> very, right. very um, pro-Labour well, we until the creeping you know, yeah. detention yeah. for 90 days. Yeah. Yeah. Should I look up... Uh, anything about terrorism from yeah. my US module, it would be surname like Nazir, it's a preemptive okay. risk. Right, okay, we got it. I mean, I might add, so, I might okay. add my little bit okay. as an addendum. Thank you very much, Nazreen. Uh, sir? Uh, my name's Will Duffield. I'm an LSE student. Question regards press freedom. Uh, what are we to make of the forcible destruction of hard drives containing uh, leaked NSA files at The Guardian, uh, given the fact that copies of these hard drives existed in other countries, um, we weren't really made any sec more secure as a result of these destructions. Was it just kind of security state posturing? And what does this say about the current relationship? Uh, sort of what does The Guardian's compliance say about the current relationship between the government and the fourth estate? All right, thanks, Will. Very compact. We're going to take a tweet, and then we'll come to you. Bradley, do we have a tweet? Yeah, sure. Which are going to be appearing here, I think. So the first one we've got from Twitter is from Nick Cragen, who asks, where national security is an issue, how should the judiciary... I can never say this word. Yeah. Judiciary uh, balance different uh, deference with the protection of human rights. Very good. Marvellous. Thanks. Uh, Nick Fire. Bradley, I'm going to be pretty quick on you okay, guys so because we want another couple okay, so of rounds. Three in a row. So, so equality versus liberty is kind of what you're saying. This is, you know, this is a bit of a bug. On the left, there's always this kind of, oh, Shami, I care about collective rights. I don't care about individual rights. I don't care about liberty. I care about equality. Um, <laughs> you're not saying that. And what I say is, if you think that there is a straight choice between equality and liberty, tell that to a slave. And Eleanor Roosevelt famously said, human rights begin in small places close to him. When you actually think about what a human being needs for their dignity and, and to thrive, think about a guest coming to your home 
and you don't say you can choose between equality and liberty. You don't say you get to stay for the weekend, but you get to choose between eating at the table and speaking at the table. You just don't do that. And you can have a room for the night, and you can have the bed and the shelter, but we'll put a camera in your bedroom. It doesn't work like that. Um, they're, all of these rights, the social and economic and the civil and political, are part of what it is to respect a human being. They're just sometimes delivered by different mechanisms. In this country since the war, we've had a welfare state to help with um, social and economic rights, and we've had you know, things like the ECHR to help as a backstop for the civil and political rights, and the bridge between the two is legal aid. And now even that has been decimated, so that's what I think about that. Will press freedom and hard Bottom line, these spooks got a little bit out of control, and they don't even have the humility now, some of them, to say, we made a mistake, we'll do better in the future, we were going through tough times. They want no privacy for us and no scrutiny for them. And that is a really, really dangerous cocktail that, that they, should not, they should not be allowed. And as to the iconography of busting up hard drives, you're right, it's just... It's just um, it's, it's just making a, a show, you know, and, and, and the Guardian, you know, they obviously made a tactical judgment, let, let people see spooks coming in and busting up our hard, hard drives, we know the materials elsewhere, but the fact that the, that the spooks and the state wanted that iconography and those optics, that's what should be... Um, should be chilling. I, I use the word chilling too much. Some clever person on the internet said that Chakrabarti sees refrigerators everywhere. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, national security and human rights. Okay, here's the thing. Um, liberty and security, as it, read Connor's book actually, that's the answer. Read Connor's book. <laughs> liberty and security is as false a choice as, as, as liberty and equality. And if you believe in human rights, you know, the human rights are, include the right to life and positive obligations on the state to protect people from harm, as well as, uh, as, as rights that require the, the state to restrain itself um, in, in, in how intrusive it is. Brilliant. Uh, Just I'll uh, take them in reverse order and say something very brief on each. The one about national security, how should the judiciary balance deference with the protection of human rights, very much agree with what Sami, Shami said. I'd just like to add one thing. That word deference, you know, we have a constitutional system in this country in which it is appropriate to some extent to talk about deference to the legislature. But what we've been, really been talking about here is deference to the executive. Mm. And that, I think, is a really dangerous thing. So that's one thing. The, the, I want to say, given the awfulness of what, what has happened around surveillance, I actually, in some ways, thought the iconography was very powerful. Uh, I, I could enjoy the iconography precisely because I think it had an impact and, I, and, and, and knowing that the data had been <laughs> preserved, I sort of felt that I was, I was glad it got the attention it did. But I mean, the whole thing is just distressing beyond belief. And your, your question about, about labor and the left more generally, I mean, I, I, I guess um, I think it's just so important to keep up the sort of critical analysis and campaigning and lobbying and just making good arguments for uh, you know, the way Shami did about the, the way in which in equality underpins other rights. Um, but I, I guess as a social scientist, I also think it's incredibly important to understand why Labour has moved in the direction it has. And I think there are real issues about things as basic as the way the electoral system works in this country that are part of this picture. Mm.
Great. Thanks, Nikki, and both for the discipline of the answers. Gentleman in blue, the thing's going right up there. This side has been neglected up to now. I'm tempted to take the lady in white directly in front of him. Got these two. Got another tweet. Back center has been neglected. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> Name and briefish question, please. Okay, uh, my name is Danny D. Uh, thank you for the excellent presentation. I think we seem to have a problem with the state. Um, um, John Locke said, uh, we only have a perfect freedom in the state of nature. Is it ever possible to perfect uh, these uh, states or disempower this small elite that really causing a problem because all our complaints about criminalization, all of these problems are about the state. And so what can we do about this state, this monstrous state? Mm -hmm. um, that's my question. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. That's powerful. Uh, the lady in front of you should be now getting it. The microphone, madam. Thanks. Uh, I'm Amy and I'm a little bit of an optimist. Um, it, was, it was a question for Nicola, and it was just, I thought your talk was really interesting, and I thought what you said about, you know, the government's making lots of criminal laws because governments around the world can't really do much else anymore um, was, was a really interesting point, really made me think. But I thought that it was important to note that we've also got rid of some really bad and liberal criminal laws like homosexuality and, you know, things like that. And in that sense, maybe we are more free. And, you know, if it's a criminal offence to keep some rancid meat in an abattoir, that's, that's one thing, but I'm really glad that it's no longer a crime to be a homosexual. And is there, is there a kind of question, or is that a sort of just optimistic an observation. observation? Sorry. Just generally uplifting. Marvellous. <laughs> Danny, there you are, that's the answer. Uh, thank you very much, Emil. No, it's wonderful. There's a gentleman who caught my eye, who's now got his left hand up, and then we got a tweet. Yeah, that's it. Uh, not you, sir. I'm terribly sorry, but uh, you have a certain air of authority, so we might take you directly after. Sir. Hi, I, uh, I'm Henrique Carvalho from City, and I just have a question. I wonder whether there is an issue uh, embedded in this, this, both of these perspectives regarding trust and a problem with trust today. And uh, I sense a tension in the sense that this demand for universality, which I think every one of us in principle agree with, is I think in essence a demand that we should trust each other and that uh, uh, we, we can't really achieve universality without this core of trust. And at the same time, I think Nikki alluded to this socio-political climate today in which we have a problem in which we feel we can't trust each other because we don't feel like we share the same fate or the, even the same social uh, perspective or, or, or re, with regards to life or politics with each other. So how do we solve this tension, I guess? That's my question. Thanks, Lee. And sir, you are on if you've got it, yeah. Um, hi, my name is Saran, and I'm a London resident. And my question is about uh, the uh, a guidance given by the Law Society a couple of months ago on how to apply Sharia law. And I wonder if this is not like a backdoor to undermine equality and liberty. Thanks. And I guess you're referring to it being appropriate on occasion to deploy Sharia law. I, yeah, you're nodding, yeah. Uh, Bradley, we take a tweet and then we'll go to you. A lot of a menu there, but some observations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, this one's from CG Citizen, who asks, shall the BBC be free enough to promote UKIP and ignore the Green Party during election time? 
great question, uh, CJ, and I think it's actually also inviting us to have a word or two about the impact of UKIP as a phenomenon. I think it bears on some of the trust issues and yeah. some of the disempowerment issues. Mm. Nick, do you want to go first? Okay, let me, do, I mean, great questions, and I just touch on each of them very briefly. Um, can we ever disempower the elite or the state? Well, I mean, we, we can't, there are always going to be elites and there's probably always going to be a state, but we can at least try to call it to account, criticize, speak up, Vote, you know, this I know that sounds anodyne, but we have to be realistic. Power has always existed, uh, there were always elites, even in the world that we sometimes look back on with nostalgia. Um, but that's um, you know, nonetheless, that doesn't mean we can't act politically, and that leads on nicely to your very uh good intervention to remind us that it's not all been bad, and indeed, of course, it's quite wrong to feel. You know, I, I think when one thinks about this, the, the, the issues I was talking about, it's very um, tempting to sort of look back to the post-war era as an era of sort of more liberalism in, in a very broad way. But of course, you know, that's ridiculous because there has been a lot of important decriminalisation, perhaps quantitatively not so much, but, but the, the progress on sexuality, uh, progress on um, abortion, for me, is very, very important. Mm. So there have been lots of advances. And of course, you know, speaking as a woman, one would hardly want to turn the clock back. So that isn't the issue, and there have been some gains. Um, your point, Enrique, about decline of trust, I think that's just incredibly important. And I think, you know, there's, there's evidence from a lot of international studies that show that the societies that have low trust tend to be also the societies that have high inequality, high crime, high punishment, a whole lot of other things. So I, I think, you know, trying to rebuild that sense of universality and trust, where do we do it? We can't just do it in the criminal justice system. We can't. We can do it somewhat through our political and social action. I think education the education system is probably the most important social institution really there. Um, the, the only thing I would say about your question about Sharia law is that I wouldn't single Sharia law out in terms of these guidelines on how other legal systems are dealt with within a particular space. There are lots of ways in which other legal orders get recognition for instance, Jewish law in some family matters. These all raise some quite difficult questions around universality. Um, but, but yeah, so that's what I'll say about that. I, I have a tweet. I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> yep, I think fine. Yeah. yeah, it's not compulsory. Yeah. And it gives Shami to, I mean, certainly deal with that one and the others okay, briskly. Well, and we might get another round, you see. No, on the, on the tweet, you know, everyone gets cross with the BBC, but, you know, I think it's a great institution like the NHS, you'd miss it if it were gone. I, I, I think they've got certain rules that actually, do you remember the big fuss about having the BMP on question time, everyone got very hot under the colour about it, but actually it was the right thing to do. Um, and they have, they have rules, they have Reithian rules that kind of work about when people get a certain percentage of, of, of the vote, then they have to be dealt with, and I kind of, I kind of agree with that. The whole no platform thing I don't think works in the internet age and I think it was always a tactic, my own view was it was a tactic that some people on the left turned into a principle, even a religion. 
you know, it works if we're having a town hall meeting. I'm like, I'm not going to dignify that person, and that and that person doesn't get heard. But that's not going to work in the age of the of, of the internet. So, I, but my my view, surprise, surprise, is that people need to be taken on. They, they you know, whether they're UKIP or the BNP or whoever it is that's on the ascendancy um, with the politics of of, of, of ignorance and hate. Um, and xenophobia and all the rest of it at a, at a particular time. And of course, they feed on mistrust. We're talking about trust. I, I, my experience of trust is, firstly, that it's not necessarily as bleak a picture as you might think. I think, actually, we've lost trust in great institutions of, of power and elites and elite in this country. You know, first, it was the, the government over the Iraq war. Could they, you know, how could they lie to us over weapons of mass destruction? Then it was the MPs. Don't be scroungers and don't be committing antisocial behaviour. I'll have some more expenses, please. So we lost trust in them. And it was those nice bank managers. <laughs> and look at what they got up to. And then we had to have socialism for the bank managers, didn't we, to bail them. Right, so we lost trust in the bank managers. Then um, from the journalists who we trusted to hold all the powerful, then they were, you know, phone hacking and Leveson and all of that. And yet, we need these institutions because democracy does need these institutions. So we actually need to rebuild trust in institutions that are reformed and that have checks and balances. That's, I'm not anti-state, which links to the point about the state and the monstrous state. I believe in the state because I believe that we aren't just individual creatures, we are social creatures and we do great things when we come together. But you know, whether it's big business or big charity or big government, we need checks and balances. And that's my big beef with the current political class. They don't believe in checks and balances. They are, too many of them, constitutionally illiterate. I'm sorry if that sounds a bit snotty, but they talk about unelected judges. How dare they? That used to be, that used to be kind of, you know, the hard left that used to want to elect the, elect the judges. Now it's still David Cameron and Michael Go they want to elect the judges. Really? Of course they do. <laughs> well, great. Well, Barabbas will always go free. Um, and, um, and, and what's left? Deference. And, and, yeah, I mean, deference. What they're really saying is they don't recognise the legitimacy of any other players in in democracy and in the constitution, except that they want a blank check. I've won an election, or I haven't even won an election. I've done a deal after a, a hung parliament, and that's it. I'm going to get a blank check for five years. And therefore, no human rights, no rule of law, no independent judiciary. I don't think so. That's how democracy eats itself, and it only lasts for five minutes, and then suddenly it's Zimbabwe or, um, or, or wherever. And, and Amy's point is a, is a good one, of course. There were great games, and whenever I'm looking to say nice things about Mr Blair's human rights record, I'll go, oh, but we got gay equality. But what I will say is that didn't just happen through the kindness of anyone's heart. It is phenomenal that we have a Conservative Prime Minister who's prepared to, to upset his right wing by instituting gay marriage. But let's look at how that journey actually happened. And it was Section 28 of the infamous Local Government Act and it was a popular movement that responded to that homophobic Thatcherite legislation. That's how we got where we are today. It was people coming out to their parents in their homes and all the pain that was involved in that. It was people taking to the streets over Section 28. And, and then, and it was litigation in the infamous Court of Human Rights, thank you very much. It wasn't just because these nice Tory and New Labour boys woke up one day and thought, oh, I believe in gay equality. These were people's struggles and they were legal struggles, and let's never forget that. Right, good. Uh, couple, a couple. Yes.
Not too long, not too long. The lady in green, and do we have, I'm, I'm sort of thinking, and we'll have this lady, and that'll balance it out, and then we have to stop. So, uh, can we run down, here we are, four from the bottom, and then get the thing up to the lady dressed in black. Uh, Madam. Uh, uh, thank you, yes, my name is Liz Seiss, I work in disability, and um, we're seeing more and more people with mental health problems being detained compulsorily, both in hospitals and treated against their will in the community. The community bit was meant to mean less people being detained in hospitals against their will, but actually both just rise and rise inexorably, and it's all about the threshold of risk gets ever, ever greater, so, you know, you might possibly be a risk to somebody else or to yourself, you might, you've got no way of demonstrating demonstrating that you're not going to do anything, it's the preemptive point you raised, um, and also if you have complete capacity to make decisions for yourself, the law still says you could be treated against your will. I wondered if you could just say, it, it touches on the point that, um, that uh, Nicola made about um, who is being impacted by some of this preemptive stuff. And there are some opportunities around with the UN Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities examining the UK and so on. I just wondered what hope for doing something through some of those mechanisms. Thanks, Liz. That's great, actually, because we haven't dealt with much on that. Yeah. And that might be to you, Nikki, and yeah. also the international bit. Uh, and now, madam, that's the last question from the floor. We have no more tweets. Um, my name's Kate Key. I'm a student from London. Um, Shami, you were talking about how um, a degree of privacy is needed in um, like juries and stuff to ensure the smooth running. Um, but do you think that privacy also applies to politicians and their dealings, for example, Tony Blair and George Bush regarding the Iraq war? <laughs> um, surely we deserve transparency um, regarding that if all of our emails and text messages can be looked at by them. Right, nice one. Very good. Uh, I think we'll go with Shami and we'll give Nikki the last word. So yeah. I think these divide up, actually. Yeah. If you could take the second one and Nikki the first. And yeah, why not? Why not? Then we wrap it up. Um, so, so do I think that um, privacy extends to um, emails um, about the Iraq war between George Bush and Tony Blair? No. <laughs> <laughs> why? Because there's a difference between privacy and secrecy. I go back to my point. They want no privacy for us and no scrutiny for them. This, you know, this was their work in our name, on our behalf. This information belongs to us. We have a right to know. This is not their intimate lives. Well, it may have been their intimate lives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not interested. I'm not, I'm not, to be honest, I'm far less interested in in, you know, in tycoons' wives and, and all of that stuff than I am in the, in, in the conversations and the, and the communications about life and death and, and war and peace. And that's not the private sphere. That is just not the, that's not the private sphere. Um, it's, that's, that's easy. But, but, but as I say, they, they want to protect all of that. They've increased secrecy in the same period that they've minimised our privacy. And I think that's really, really telling in terms of power and in terms of justice, in terms of checks and balances and the kind of democratic society you want to live in. Nikki's going to deal with the mental health point, but I would just say this. You know, they say we don't like the Human Rights Act because it gives rights to prisoners. Well, there are prisoners, including unlikely prisoners, everywhere, in domestic homes, in residential care, and they need the Convention, and they need the Human Rights Act. And with our ageing population and all the issues of resources and care and, and decent care that that throws up, those prisoners need the Human Rights Act um, as much as the convicted ones in our bulging prisons. 
Great. Well, <coughs> right, and I, I'm, I'm very glad that you've raised the question of, of mental health, uh, mental, mentally ill people because they, I mean, I could easily have taken them as an example of a, a you know, a relatively voiceless group who have been very much subject and over quite a long period of time to these, these preventive measures and caught up in the increasingly, you know, sophisticated and arcane processes of risk assessment. And, and I, I'd just like to, and I, you know, something on which my colleague Jill Pierre, who's actually here tonight, is a, is a real expert. Um, but I'd like to just on a final note, tie that up with the point that was made about trust, because I think that one of the things that's going on with all this, um, you know, belief that we, we can make the world a safer place and pander to our own and others' uh, demands for security, um, itself sort of betrays a certain lack of trust, a certain kind of growth of uh, atomism, which I think it's terribly important through our social activism to, to counter. And um, I think, you know, I'm glad that you've mentioned that that very poignant example uh, at the end to, to finish this off and re remind us just how how complicated but how important these issues are. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, Jill Pierre's talk is online. We did a talk about, what is that, October 12 months ago on that? Uh, and that's online, so we have got a whole session of one of our conversations devoted to that. Uh, it's been a fantastic evening. We're just finished two minutes ahead because obviously we're exactly an hour and a half. Can I plug something? I mean, we don't normally have anything to plug because we're going into the long vacation. It's fantastic this number of people here. Uh, we're having a constitutional carnival, a constitutional carnival at LSC in the fantastic new Students' Union building, Irish designed, world record holder. <laughs> LSC even got a prize for having the good sense to use these architects. Uh, architectural customer of the year or something. <laughs> and uh, it's on the 26th of June. 26th of June, and it, it starts about 4 o'clock. We're having a steel band. We have a special wrap, which has been commissioned, a, commission, a commissioned constitutional wrap. We have Morris dancers doing a specially commissioned constitutional Morris dance. But no, it's not all comedy. These are fantastic artistic events. But we also have MPs, members of the House of Lords, students, young people, arguing about whether we should be a republic, whether we should have the House of Lords, what kind of voting we should have, whether we should have guaranteed social and economic rights. In other words, this is now the we is law, but it's also the Institute of Public Affairs. We want to try and demystify this stuff about constitutions. We've got a website, www.constitutionuk, where we've talked to people who don't think they have a constitutional point of view until it emerges. They have one which is better informed and, in inverted commas, more real than that of the so-called experts. So it's in that spirit we're doing it. You can find it on the website. And obviously, it's June. There's no students. We'd love you to come along to make up <laughs> the numbers. Uh, we may even have, I can't remember, I think we have a drink afterwards from a large glass that we share. And, no. and Connor, I forgot, my colleagues will kill me. Please have a look at Liberty's website. We need you to, to join us. Join. Please. Look at the lapel badge. Look at that. I wear the thing. And She's so unreliable, her colleagues pinned that to her when she left, <laughs> left the office. Join us, and even with it on, she forgot to say that. Join, join Liberty. Liberty. Now, and Nikki, do you want us to join anything? You've, I, mean, you, I mean, no, no, you've got some. I'm already a member. The Mannheim Centre. I'm already a member. <laughs> uh, thanks to Bradley. Bradley's the person 
person who has livened up these debates so tremendously at LSE Laws. We're very grateful to him. Thanks to the stewards who've been running around to get the microphones to you in time. Uh, but uh, thanks too to yourselves for coming, and especially the students. A few of you are students. Fantastic that you were able to come despite the pressure of exams. Mainly, and now we, after this round of applause, walk outside where I think there will be drinks. You'll have seen some astute members of the audience leaving early. <laughs> Allegedly to get the train home. Well, we know where they are. Uh, but just before you do that, a round of applause for our two fantastic figures.